Book Two, Chapter Sixteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Sixteen. Having ridden round the whole line from right flank to left, Prince Andrew made his way up to the battery from which the staff officer had told him the whole field could be seen. Here he dismounted and stopped beside the farthest of the four unlimbered cannon. Before the guns an artillery sentry was pacing up and down. He stood at attention when the officer arrived, but at a sign resumed his measured, monotonous pacing. Behind the guns were their limbers and still farther back picket ropes and artillerymen's bonfires. To the left, not far from the farthest cannon, was a small newly constructed wattle-shed, from which came the sound of officers' voices in eager conversation. It was true that a view over nearly the whole Russian position and the greater part of the enemies opened out from this battery. Just facing it, on the crest of the opposite hill, the village of Schongraben could be seen, and in three places to left and right the French troops amid the smoke of their campfires, the greater part of whom were evidently in the village itself and behind the hill. To the left from that village, amid the smoke, was something resembling a battery, but it was impossible to see it clearly with the naked eye. Our right flank was posted on a rather steep incline, which dominated the French position. Our infantry were stationed there, and at the farthest point the dragoons. In the center, where Tushin's battery stood and from which Prince Andrew was surveying the position, was the easiest and most direct descent and ascent to the brook separating us from Schoengrabern. On the left our troops were close to a copse, in which smoked the bonfires of our infantry who were felling wood. The French line was wider than ours, and it was plain that they could easily outflank us on both sides. Behind our position was a steep and deep dip, making it difficult for artillery and cavalry to retire. Prince Andrew took out his notebook and, leaning on the cannon, sketched a plan of the position. He made some notes on two points, intending to mention them to Brigadian. His idea was, first, to concentrate all the artillery in the center, and secondly, to withdraw the cavalry to the other side of the dip. Prince Andrew, being always near the commander-in-chief, closely following the mass movements and general orders, and constantly studying historical accounts of battles, involuntarily pictured to himself the course of events in the forthcoming action in broad outline. He imagined only important possibilities. If the enemy attacks the right flank, he said to himself, the Kiev grenadiers and the Podolsk chasseurs must hold their position till reserves from the center come up. In that case the dragoons could successfully make a flank counterattack. If they attack our center, we, having the center battery on this high ground, shall withdraw the left flank under its cover, and retreat to the dip by echelons." So he reasoned. All the time he had been beside the gun, he had heard the voices of the officers distinctly, but as often happens had not understood a word of what they were saying. Suddenly, however, he was struck by a voice coming from the shed, and its tone was so sincere that he could not but listen. No, friend, said a pleasant, and, as it seemed to Prince Andrew, a familiar voice. What I say is that, if it were possible to know what is beyond death, none of us would be afraid of it. That's so, friend. 
another, a younger voice interrupted him. "'Afraid or not, you can't escape it anyhow.' "'All the same, one is afraid. Oh, you clever people!' said a third manly voice interrupting them both. "'Of course you artillerymen are very wise, because you can take everything along with you—vodka and snacks.' And the owner of the manly voice, evidently an infantry officer, laughed. "'Yes, one is afraid,' continued the first speaker, he of the familiar voice. "'One is afraid of the unknown, that's what it is. Whatever we may say about the soul going to the sky, we know there is no sky but only an atmosphere.' The manly voice again interrupted the artillery officer. "'Well, stand us some of your herb vodka, Tushin,' it said. "'Why,' thought Prince Andrew, "'that's the captain who stood up in the sutler's hut without his boots.' He recognized the agreeable, philosophizing voice with pleasure. "'Some herb vodka? Certainly,' said Tushin. "'But still, to conceive a future life—' He did not finish. Just then there was a whistle in the air, nearer and nearer, faster and louder, louder and faster, a cannonball. As if it had not finished saying what was necessary, thudded into the ground near the shed with superhuman force, throwing up a mass of earth. The ground seemed to groan at the terrible impact. And immediately Tushin, with a short pipe in the corner of his mouth and his kind, intelligent face rather pale, rushed out of the shed, followed by the owner of the manly voice, a dashing infantry officer who hurried off to his company, buttoning up his coat as he ran. End of Book Two, Chapter Sixteen Book Two, Chapter Seventeen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Seventeen. Mounting his horse again, Prince Andrew lingered with the battery, looking at the puff from the gun that had sent the ball. His eyes ran rapidly over the wide space, but he only saw that the hitherto motionless masses of the French now swayed, and that there really was a battery to their left. The smoke above it had not yet dispersed. Two mounted Frenchmen, probably adjutants, were galloping up the hill. A small but distinctly visible enemy column was moving down the hill, probably to strengthen the front line. The smoke of the first shot had not yet dispersed before another puff appeared, followed by a report. The battle had begun. Prince Andrew turned his horse and galloped back to Grunth to find Prince Bergradian. He heard the cannonade behind him growing louder and more frequent. Evidently our guns had begun to reply. From the bottom of the slope, where the parties had taken place, came the report of musketry. Lamarois had just arrived at a gallop with Bonaparte's stern letter, and Marat, humiliated and anxious to expiate his fault, had at once moved his forces to attack the center and outflank both the Russian wings, hoping before evening, and before the arrival of the Emperor, to crush the contemptible detachment that stood before him. It has begun. Here it is, thought Prince Andrew, feeling the blood rush to his heart. But where and how will my Toulon present itself? Passing between the companies that had been eating porridge and drinking vodka a quarter of an hour before, he saw everywhere the same rapid movement of soldiers forming ranks and getting their muskets ready, 
and on all their faces he recognized the same eagerness that filled his heart. "'It has begun. Here it is, dreadful but enjoyable,' was what the face of each soldier and each officer seemed to say. Before he had reached the embankments that were being thrown up, he saw in the light of the dull autumn evening mounted men coming toward him. The foremost, wearing a Cossack cloak and lambskin cap and riding a white horse, was Prince Bragradian. Prince Andrew stopped, waiting for him to come up. Prince Bragradian reined in his horse and, recognizing Prince Andrew, nodded to him. He still looked ahead while Prince Andrew told him what he had seen. The feeling, it has begun, here it is, was seen even on Prince Bragradian's hard brown face, with its half-closed, dull, sleepy eyes. Prince Andrew gazed with anxious curiosity at that impassive face, and wished he could tell what, if anything, this man was thinking and feeling at that moment. "'Is there anything at all behind that impassive face?' Prince Andrew asked himself as he looked. Prince Bragradian bent his head in sign of agreement with what Prince Andrew told him, and said, "'Very good,' in a tone that seemed to imply that everything that took place and was reported to him was exactly what he had foreseen. Prince Andrew, out of breath with his rapid ride, spoke quickly. Prince Bragradian, uttering his words with an Oriental accent, spoke particularly slowly, as if to impress the fact that there was no need to hurry. However, he put his horse to a trot in the direction of Tushin's battery. Prince Andrew followed with the suite. Behind Prince Bragradian rode an officer of the suite, the prince's personal adjutant, Zerkov, an orderly officer, the staff officer on duty, riding a fine bobtailed horse and a civilian, an accountant who had asked permission to be present at the battle out of curiosity. The accountant, a stout, full-faced man, looked around him with a naive smile of satisfaction, and presented a strange appearance among the hussars, Cossacks, and adjutants in his camlet coat, as he jolted on his horse with a convoy officer's saddle. "'He wants to see a battle,' said Zerkov to Bolkonsky, pointing to the accountant. "'But he feels a pain in the pit of his stomach already.' "'I'll leave off,' said the accountant, with a beaming but rather cunning smile, as if flattered at being made the subject of Zerkov's joke, and purposely trying to appear stupider than he really was. "'It's very strange, mon monsieur prince,' said the staff officer. He remembered that in French there is some peculiar way of addressing a prince, but could not get it quite right. By this time they were all approaching Tushin's battery, and a ball struck the ground in front of them. "'What's that that has fallen?' asked the accountant with a naive smile. "'A French pancake,' answered Zerkov. "'So that's what they hit with?' asked the accountant. "'How awful!' He seemed to swell with satisfaction. He had hardly finished speaking when they again heard an unexpectedly violent whistling which suddenly ended with a thud into something soft. Flop! And a Cossack, riding a little to the right and behind the accountant, crashed to earth with his horse. Zerkov and the staff officer bent over their saddles and turned their horses away. The accountant stopped, facing the Cossack, and examined him with attentive curiosity. The Cossack was dead, but the horse still struggled. Prince Bragradian screwed up his eyes, looked round, and seeing the cause of the confusion, turned away with indifference, as if to say, Is it worth while noticing trifles? He reined in his horse with the care of a skilful rider, 
and, slightly bending over, disengaged his sabre which had caught in his cloak. It was an old-fashioned sabre of a kind no longer in general use. Prince Andrew remembered the story of Suvarov giving his sabre to Bagradian in Italy, and the recollection was particularly pleasant at that moment. They had reached the battery at which Prince Andrew had been when he examined the battlefield. "'Whose company?' asked Prince Bagradian of an artilleryman standing by the ammunition wagon. He asked whose company, but he really meant, Are you frightened here? And the artilleryman understood him. Captain Tushin's, Your Excellency! shouted the red haired, freckled gunner in a merry voice, standing to attention. Yes, yes, muttered Bagradian, as if considering something, and he rode past the limbers to the farthest cannon. As he approached, a ringing shot issued from it, deafening him and his suite, and in the smoke that suddenly surrounded the gun they could see the gunners who had seized it, straining to roll it quickly back to its former position. A huge, broad-shouldered gunner, number one, holding a mop, his legs far apart, sprang to the wheel, while number two, with a trembling hand, placed a charge in the cannon's mouth. The short, round-shouldered Captain Tushin, stumbling over the tail of the gun-carriage, moved forward, and, not noticing the general, looked out, shading his eyes with his small hand. "'Lift it two lines more, and it will be just right,' cried he in a feeble voice to which he tried to impart a dashing note, ill-suited to his weak figure. "'Number two, he squeaked. "'Fire, Medvedev!' Bagradian called to him, and Tushin, raising three fingers to his cap with a bashful and awkward gesture, not at all like a military salute, but like a priest's benediction, approached the general. Though Tushin's guns had been intended to cannonade the valley, he was firing incendiary balls at the village of Schoengraben, visible just opposite, in front of which large masses of French were advancing. No one had given Tushin orders where and at what to fire but after consulting his sergeant-major, Zakharchenko, for whom he had great respect, he had decided that it would be a good thing to set fire to the village. "'Very good,' said Bagradian, in reply to the officer's report, and began deliberately to examine the whole battlefield extended before him. The French had advanced nearest on our right. Below the height in which the Kiev regiment was stationed, in the hollow where the rivulet flowed, the soul-stirring rolling and crackling of musketry was heard, and much farther to the right, beyond the dragoons, the officer of the suite pointed out to Bagradian a French column that was outflanking us. To the left the horizon bounded by the adjacent wood. Prince Bagradian ordered two battalions from the centre to be sent to reinforce the right flank. The officer of the suite ventured to remark to the prince that, if these battalions went away, the guns would remain without support. Prince Bagradian turned to the officer, and with his dull eyes looked at him in silence. It seemed to Prince Andrew that the officer's remark was just, and that really no answer could be made to it. But at that moment an adjutant galloped up with a message from the commander of the regiment in the hollow, and news that immense masses of the French were coming down upon them, and that his regiment was in disorder and was retreating upon the Kiev grenadiers. Prince Bagradian bowed his head in sign of assent and approval. He rode off at a walk to the right, and sent an adjutant to the dragoons with orders to attack the French. But this adjutant returned half an hour later with the news that the commander of the dragoons had already retreated beyond the dip in the ground, 
as a heavy fire had been opened on him and he was losing men uselessly, and so had hastened to throw some sharpshooters into the wood. "'Very good,' said Begradian. As he was leaving the battery, firing was heard on the left also, and as it was too far to the left flank for him to have time to go there himself, Prince Bergradian sent Zerkov to tell the general in command, the one who had paraded his regiment before Kutuzov at Brunau, that he must retreat as quickly as possible behind the hollow in the rear, as the right flank would probably not be able to withstand the enemy's attack very long. About Tushin and the battalion that had been in support of his battery, all was forgotten. Prince Andrew listened attentively to Bagradian's colloquies with the commanding officers and the orders he gave them, and to his surprise found that no orders were really given, but that Prince Bagradian tried to make it appear that everything done by necessity, by accident, or by the will of subordinate commanders was done, if not by his direct command, at least in accord with his intentions. Prince Andrew noticed, however, that, though what happened was due to chance and was independent of the commander's will, owing to the tact Bagradian showed, his presence was very valuable. Officers, who approached him with disturbed countenances, became calm. Soldiers and officers greeted him gaily, grew more cheerful in his presence, and were evidently anxious to display their courage before him. End of Book Two, Chapter Seventeen Book Two, Chapter Eighteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Eighteen. Prince Bagradian, having reached the highest point of our right flank, began riding downhill to where the roll of musketry was heard, but where, on account of the smoke, nothing could be seen. The nearer they got to the hollow, the less they could see but the more they felt the nearness of the actual battlefield. They began to meet wounded men. One, with a bleeding head and no cap, was being dragged along by two soldiers who supported him under the arms. There was a gurgle in his throat and he was spitting blood. A bullet had evidently hit him in the throat or mouth. Another was walking sturdily by himself but without his musket, groaning aloud and swinging his arm which had just been hurt while blood from it was streaming over his greatcoat as from a bottle. He had that moment been wounded and his face showed fear rather than suffering. Crossing a road they descended a steep incline and saw several men lying on the ground. They also met a crowd of soldiers, some of whom were unwounded. The soldiers were ascending the hill breathing heavily, and despite their general's presence were talking loudly and gesticulating. In front of them rows of grey cloaks were already visible through the smoke, and an officer catching sight of Bergradian rushed shouting after the crowd of retreating soldiers, ordering them back. Bagradian rode up to the ranks along which shots crackled now here and now there, drowning the sound of voices and the shouts of command. The whole air reeked with smoke. The excited faces of the soldiers were blackened with it. Some were using their ramrods, other putting powder on the touch-pads, or taking charges from their pouches, while others were firing, though who they were firing at could not be seen for the smoke, which there was no wind to carry away. A pleasant humming and whistling of bullets were often heard. "'What's this?' thought Prince Andrew, approaching the crowd of soldiers. "'It can't be an attack, 
for they are not moving. It can't be a square, for they are not drawn up for that." The commander of the regiment, a thin, feeble-looking old man with a pleasant smile, his eyelids drooping more than half over his old eyes, giving him a mild expression, rode up to Bagradian and welcomed him as a host welcomes an honored guest. He reported that his regiment had been attacked by French cavalry, and that, though the attack had been repulsed, he had lost more than half his men. He said the attack had been repulsed, employing this military term to describe what had occurred to his regiment, but in reality he did not himself know what had happened during that half-hour to the troops entrusted to him, and could not say with certainty whether the attack had been repulsed or his regiment had been broken up. All he knew was that, at the commencement of the action, balls and shells began flying all over his regiment and hitting men, and that afterwards someone had shouted, Cavalry! and our men had begun firing. They were still firing, not at the cavalry which had disappeared, but at French infantry who had come into the hollow and were firing at our men." Prince Bagradian bowed his head as a sign that this was exactly what he had desired and expected. Turning to his adjutant, he ordered him to bring down the two battalions of the six chasseurs, whom they had just passed. Prince Andrew was struck by the changed expression on Prince Bagradian's face at this moment. It expressed the concentrated and happy resolution you see on the face of a man who on a hot day takes a final run before plunging into the water. The dull, sleepy expression was no longer there, nor the affectation of profound thought. The round, steady hawk's eyes looked before him eagerly and rather disdainfully, not resting on anything, although his movements were still slow and measured. The commander of the regiment turned to Prince Bergradian, entreating him to go back, as it was too dangerous to remain where they were. "'Please, Your Excellency, for God's sake!' he kept saying, glancing for support at an officer of the suite who turned away from him. "'There, you see!' And he drew attention to the bullets whistling, singing, and hissing continually around them. He spoke in the tone of entreaty and reproach that a carpenter uses to a gentleman who has picked up an axe. "'We are used to it, but you, sir, will blister your hands.' He spoke as if those bullets could not kill him, and his half-closed eyes gave still more persuasiveness to his words. The staff officer joined in the colonel's appeals, but Bagradian did not reply. He only gave an order to cease firing and reform, so as to give room for the two approaching battalions. While he was speaking, the curtain of smoke that had concealed the hollow, driven by a rising wind, began to move from right to left, as if drawn by an invisible hand and the hill opposite, with the French moving about on it, opened out before them. All eyes fastened involuntarily on this French column advancing against them, and winding down over the uneven ground. One could already see the soldiers' shaggy caps, distinguish the officers from the men, and see the standard flapping against its staff. "'They marched splendidly,' remarked someone in Bagradian's suite. The head of the column had already descended into the hollow. The clash would take place on this side of it. The remains of our regiment, which had been in action, rapidly formed up and moved to the right. From behind it, dispersing the laggards, came two battalions of the six sachures in fine order. Before they had reached Bergradian, the weighty tread of the mass of men marching in step could be heard. On their left flank, nearest to Bergradian, marched a company commander, a fine, round-faced man, with a stupid and happy expression. 
the same man who had rushed out of the wattle-shed. At that moment he was clearly thinking of nothing but how dashing a fellow he would appear as he passed the commander. With the self-satisfaction of a man on parade, he stepped lightly with his muscular legs as if sailing along, stretching himself to his full height without the smallest effort, his ease contrasting with the heavy tread of the soldiers who were keeping step with him. He carried close to his leg a narrow, unsheathed sword, small, curved, and not like a real weapon, and looked now at the superior officers and now back at the men without losing step, his whole powerful body turning flexibly. It was as if all the powers of his soul were concentrated on passing the commander in the best possible manner, and feeling that he was doing it well, he was happy. Left! 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 he seemed to repeat to himself at each alternate step, and in time to this, with stern but varied faces, the wall of soldiers burdened with knapsacks and muskets marched in step, and each one of these hundreds of soldiers seemed to be repeating to himself at each alternate step, left, left, left. A fat major skirted a bush, puffing and falling out of step. A soldier who had fallen behind, his face showing alarm at his defection, ran at a trot, panting to catch up with his company. A cannonball cleaving the air flew over the heads of Bagradian and his suite, and fell into the column to the measure of left, left. "'Close up!' came the company commander's voice in jaunty tones. The soldiers passed in a semicircle round something where the ball had fallen and an old trooper on the flank, a non-commissioned officer who had stopped beside the dead men, ran to catch up his line, and falling into step with a hop, looked back angrily, and through the ominous silence and the regular tramp of feet beating the ground in unison, one seemed to hear, left, left, left. "'Well done, lads,' said Prince Bagradian. "'Glad to do our best, your excellency,' came a confused shout from the ranks. A morose soldier marching on the left turned his eyes on Bagradian as he shouted, with an expression that seemed to say, "'We know that ourselves!' Another, without looking round, as though fearing to relax, shouted with his mouth wide open and passed on. The order was given to halt and down knapsacks. Bagradian rode round the ranks that had marched past him and dismounted. He gave the reins to a Cossack, took off and handed over his felt coat, stretched his legs and set his cap straight. The head of the French column, with its officers leading, appeared from below the hill. "'Forward, with God!' said Bagradian, in a resolute, sonorous voice, turning for a moment to the front line, and slightly swinging his arms, he went forward uneasily over the rough field with the awkward gait of a cavalryman. Prince Andrew felt that an invisible power was leading him forward, and experienced great happiness. The French were already near. Prince Andrew, walking beside Bagradian, could clearly distinguish their bandoliers, red epaulets, and even their faces. He distinctly saw an old French officer, who with gaitered legs and turned-out toes climbed the hill with difficulty. Prince Bagradian gave no further orders, and silently continued to walk on in front of the ranks. Suddenly one shot after another rang out from the French, smoke appeared all along their uneven ranks, and musket-shots sounded. Several of our men fell, among them the round-faced officer who had marched so gaily and complacently. But at the moment the first report was heard, Bagradian turned round and shouted, 
Hurrah! Hurrah! Ah! Ah! rang a long, drawn-out shout from our ranks, and passing Bagradian and racing one another, they rushed in an irregular but joyous and eager crowd down the hill at their disordered foe. End of Book Two, Chapter Eighteen Book Two, Chapter Nineteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Nineteen The attack of the Sixth Chasseurs secured the retreat of our right flank. In the center, Tushin's forgotten battery, which had managed to set fire to the Schungrabern village, delayed the French advance. The French were putting out the fire which the wind was spreading, and thus gave us time to retreat. The retirement of the center to the other side of the dip in the ground at the rear was hurried and noisy, but the different companies did not get mixed. But our left, which consisted of the Azov and Podolsk infantry and the Pavlograd hussars, was simultaneously attacked and outflanked by superior French forces under Lannes, and was thrown into confusion. Bagradian had sent Zerkov to the general commanding that left flank with orders to retreat immediately. Zerkov, not removing his hand from his cap, turned his horse about and galloped off, but no sooner had he left Bagradian than his courage failed him. He was seized by panic and could not go where it was dangerous. Having reached the left flank, instead of going to the front where the firing was, he began to look for the general and his staff where they could not possibly be, and so did not deliver the order. The command of the left flank belonged by seniority to the commander of the regiment Kutuzov had reviewed at Bronau, and in which Dolokhov was serving as a private. But the command of the extreme left flank had been assigned to the commander of the Pavlograd regiment in which Rostov was serving, and a misunderstanding arose. The two commanders were much exasperated with one another, and long after the action had begun on the right flank and the French were already advancing, were engaged in discussion with the sole object of offending one another. But the regiments, both cavalry and infantry, were by no means ready for the impending action. From privates to general they were not expecting a battle and were engaged in peaceful occupations, the cavalry feeding the horses and the infantry collecting wood. "'He higher is than I in rank,' said the German colonel of the hussars, flushing and addressing an adjutant who had ridden up. "'So let him do what he will.' but I cannot sacrifice my hussars. Bugler, sounds a retreat!" But haste was becoming imperative. Cannon and musketry, mingling together, thundered on the right and in the center, while the capotes of Lannes' sharpshooters were already seen crossing the mill-dam and forming up within twice the range of a musket-shot. The general in command of the infantry went toward his horse with jerky steps, and having mounted, drew himself up very straight and tall and rode to the Pavograd commander. The commanders met with polite bows, but with secret malevolence in their hearts. "'Once again, Colonel,' said the General, "'I can't leave half my men in the wood. I beg of you, I beg of you,' he repeated, "'to occupy the position and prepare for an attack. "'I beg of you yourself not to mix in what is not your business,' suddenly replied the irate Colonel. "'If you were in the cavalry—I am not in the cavalry, Colonel, but I am a Russian general, and if you are not aware of the fact—' "'Quite aware, Your Excellency,' 
suddenly shouted the colonel, touching his horse and turning purple in the face. "'Will you be so good as to come to the front and see that this position is no good? I don't wish to destroy my men for your pleasure.' "'You forget yourself, colonel. I am not considering my own pleasure, and I won't allow it to be said.' Taking the colonel's outburst as a challenge to his courage, the general expanded his chest and rode, frowning, beside him to the front line, as if their differences would be settled there amongst the bullets. They reached the front, several bullets sped over them, and they halted in silence. There was nothing fresh to be seen from the line, for from where they had been before it had been evident that it was impossible for cavalry to act among the bushes and broken ground, as well as that the French were outflanking our left. The general and colonel looked sternly and significantly at one another, like two fighting-cocks preparing for battle, each vainly trying to detect signs of cowardice in the other. Both passed the examination successfully. As there was nothing to be said, and neither wished to give occasion for it to be alleged that he had been the first to leave the range of fire, they would have remained there for a long time testing each other's courage had it not been that just then they heard the rattle of musketry and a muffled shout almost behind them in the wood. The French had attacked the men collecting wood in the copse. It was no longer possible for the hussars to retreat with the infantry. They were cut off from the line of retreat on the left by the French. However inconvenient the position, it was now necessary to attack in order to cut a way through for themselves. The squadron in which Rostov was serving had scarcely time to mount before it was halted facing the enemy. Again, as at the end's bridge, there was nothing between the squadron and the enemy, and again that terrible dividing line of uncertainty and fear, resembling the line separating the living from the dead, lay between them. All were conscious of this unseen line, and the question whether they would cross it or not, and how they would cross it, agitated them all. The colonel rode to the front, angrily gave some reply to questions put to him by the officers, and, like a man desperately insisting on having his own way, gave an order. No one said anything definite, but the rumor of an attack spread through the squadron. The command to form up rang out, and the sabers whizzed as they were drawn from their scabbards. Still no one moved. The troops of the left flank, infantry and hussars alike, felt that the commander did not himself know what to do, and this irresolution communicated itself to the men. "'If only they would be quick,' thought Rostov, feeling that at last the time had come to experience the joy of an attack of which he had so often heard from his fellow hussars. "'Forward! With God, lads!' rang out Denisov's voice. "'At a twat! Forward!' The horses' croups began to sway in the front line. Rook pulled at the reins and started of his own accord. Before him, on the right, Rostov saw the front lines of his hussars, and still farther ahead, a dark line which he could not see distinctly, but took to be the enemy. Shots could be heard, but some way off. "'Faster!' came the word of command, and Rostov felt Rook's flanks drooping as he broke into a gallop. Rostov anticipated his horse's movements and became more and more elated. He had noticed a solitary tree ahead of him. This tree had been in the middle of the line that had seemed so terrible, and now he had crossed that line, and not only was there nothing terrible, but everything was becoming more and more happy and animated. "'Oh, how I will slash at him!' 
thought Rostov, gripping the hilt of his saber. "'Hurrah!' came a roar of voices. "'Let anyone come my way now,' thought Rostov, driving his spurs into Rook and letting him go at a full gallop, so that he outstripped the others. Ahead the enemy was already visible. Suddenly something like a birch broom seemed to sweep over the squadron. Rostov raised his saber, ready to strike, but at that instant the trooper Nikitenko, who was galloping ahead, shot away from him, and Rostov felt as in a dream that he continued to be carried forward with unnatural speed, but yet stayed on the same spot. From behind him Bondarchuk and Hussar he knew jolted against him and looked angrily at him. Bondarchuk's horse swerved and galloped past. "'How is it I am not moving? I have fallen. I am killed!' Rostov asked and answered at the same instant. He was alone in the middle of a field. Instead of the moving horses and hussars' backs, he saw nothing before him but the motionless earth and the stubble around him. There was warm blood under his arm. "'No. I am wounded and the horses killed.' Rook tried to rise on his forelegs but fell back, pinning his rider's leg. Blood was flowing from his head. He struggled but could not rise. Rostov also tried to rise, but fell back, his sabretache having become entangled in the saddle. Where our men were, and where the French, he did not know. There was no one near. Having disentangled his leg, he rose. Where on which side was now the line that had so sharply divided the two armies? He asked himself, and could not answer. Can something bad have happened to me? he wondered as he got up, and at that moment he felt that something superfluous was hanging on his benumbed left arm. His wrist felt as if it were not his. He examined his hand carefully, vainly trying to find blood on it. Ah, here are people coming, he thought joyfully, seeing some men running toward him. They will help me. In front came a man wearing a strange shako and a blue cloak, swarthy, sunburned, and with a hooked nose. Then came two more, and many more running behind. One of them said something strange, not in Russian. In among the hindmost of these men wearing similar shakos was a Russian hussar. He was being held by the arms and his horse was being led behind him. It must be one of ours, a prisoner. Yes. Can it be they will take me too? Who are these men? thought Rostov scarcely believing his eyes. Can they be French?" He looked at the approaching Frenchmen, and though but a moment before he had been galloping to get at them and hack them to pieces, their proximity now seemed so awful that he could not believe his eyes. Who are they? Why are they running? Can they be coming at me? And why? To kill me? Me, whom everyone is so fond of? He remembered his mother's love for him and his families and his friends, and the enemy's intention to kill him seemed impossible. But perhaps they may do it. For more than ten seconds he stood not moving from the spot or realizing the situation. The foremost Frenchman, the one with the hooked nose, was already so close that the expression of his face could be seen. And the excited, alien face of that man, his bayonet hanging down, holding his breath, and running so lightly, frightened Rostov. He seized his pistol, and instead of firing it, flung it at the Frenchman and ran with all his might toward the bushes. 
he did not now run with the feeling of doubt and conflict with which he had trodden the end's bridge, but with the feeling of a hare fleeing from the hounds. One single sentiment, that of fear for his young and happy life, possessed his whole being. Rapidly leaping the furrows, he fled across the field with the impetuosity he used to show at catch-play, now and then turning his good-natured, pale young face to look back. A shudder of terror went through him. No, better not look, he thought, but having reached the bushes he glanced round once more. The French had fallen behind, and just as he looked round the first man changed his run to a walk, and turning shouted something loudly to a comrade farther back. Rostov paused. No, there's some mistake, thought he. They can't have wanted to kill me. But at the same time his left arm felt as heavy as if a seventy-pound weight were tied to it. He could run no more. The Frenchman also stopped and took aim. Rostov closed his eyes and stooped down. One bullet and then another whistled past him. He mustered his last remaining strength, took hold of his left hand with his right, and reached the bushes. Behind these were some Russian sharpshooters. End of Book Two, Chapter Nineteen. Book Two, Chapter Twenty, of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Twenty. The infantry regiments that had been caught unawares in the outskirts of the wood ran out of it, the different companies getting mixed and retreated as a disorderly crowd. One soldier, in his fear, uttered the senseless cry, "'Cut off!' that is so terrible in battle, and that word infected the whole crowd with a feeling of panic. "'Surrounded! Cut off! We're lost!' shouted the fugitives. The moment he heard the firing and the cry from behind, the general realized that something dreadful had happened to his regiment, and the thought that he, an exemplary officer of many years' service who had never been to blame, might be held responsible at headquarters for negligence or inefficiency, so staggered him that, forgetting the recalcitrant cavalry colonel, his own dignity as a general, and above all, quite forgetting the danger and all regard for self-preservation, he clutched the crupper of his saddle, and spurring his horse, galloped to the regiment under a hail of bullets which fell around, but fortunately missed him. His one desire was to know what was happening, and at any cost correct or remedy the mistake if he had made one, so that he, an exemplary officer of twenty-two years' service, who had never been censured, should not be held to blame. Having galloped safely through the French, he reached a field beyond the copse across which our men, regardless of orders, were running and descending the valley. That moment of moral hesitation which decides the fate of battles had arrived. Would this disorderly crowd of soldiers attend to the voice of their commander, or would they, disregarding him, continue their flight? Despite his desperate shouts that used to seem so terrible to the soldiers, despite his furious purple countenance distorted out of all likeness to his former self, and the flourishing of his sabre, the soldiers all continued to run, talking, firing into the air, and disobeying orders. The moral hesitation which decided the fate of battles was evidently culminating in a panic. The general had a fit of coughing as a result of shouting and of the powder smoke, and stopped in despair. Everything seemed lost. 
But at that moment the French who were attacking, suddenly and without any apparent reason, ran back and disappeared from the outskirts, and Russian sharpshooters showed themselves in the copse. It was Tomokin's company, which alone had maintained its order in the wood, and having lain in ambush in a ditch, now attacked the French unexpectedly. Tomokin, armed only with the sword, had rushed at the enemy with such a desperate cry and such mad drunken determination, that taken by surprise, the French had thrown down their muskets and run. Dolikov, running beside Tomokin, killed a Frenchman at close quarters and was the first to seize the surrendering French officer by his collar. Our fugitives returned, the battalions reformed, and the French, who had nearly cut our left flank in half, were for the moment repulsed. Our reserve units were able to join up, and the fight was at an end. The regimental commander and Major Ekonomov had stopped beside a bridge, letting the retreating companies pass by them, when a soldier came up and took hold of the commander's stirrup, almost leaning against him. The man was wearing a bluish coat of broadcloth. He had no knapsack or cap. His head was bandaged, and over his shoulder a French munition pouch was slung. He had an officer's sword in his hand. The soldier was pale, his blue eyes looked impudently into the commander's face, and his lips were smiling. Though the commander was occupied in giving instructions to Major Ekonomov, he could not help taking notice of the soldier. "'Your Excellency, here are two trophies,' said Dolokhov, pointing to the French sword and pouch. "'I have taken an officer prisoner. I stopped the company.' Dolokhov breathed heavily from weariness and spoke in abrupt sentences. "'The whole company can bear witness. I beg you will remember this, Your Excellency.' "'All right, all right,' replied the commander, and turned to Major Ekonomov. But Dolokhov did not go away. He untied the handkerchief around his head, pulled it off, and showed the blood congealed on his hair. A bayonet wound. I remained at the front. Remember, Your Excellency. Tushin's battery had been forgotten, and only at the very end of the action did Prince Bagradian, still hearing the cannonade in the center, send his orderly staff officer, and later Prince Andrew also, to order the battery to retire as quickly as possible. When the supports attached to Tushin's battery had been moved away in the middle of the action by someone's order, the battery had continued firing, and was only not captured by the French because the enemy could not surmise that anyone could have the effrontery to continue firing from four quite undefended guns. On the contrary, the energetic action of that battery led the French to suppose that here, in the center, the main Russian forces were concentrated. Twice they had attempted to attack this point, but on each occasion had been driven back by grape-shot from the four isolated guns on the hillock. Soon after Prince Bagradian had left him, Tushin had succeeded in setting fire to Shun Grabern. "'Look at them scurrying! It's burning! Just see the smoke! Fine! Grand! Look at the smoke! The smoke!' exclaimed the artilleryman, brightening up. All the guns, without waiting for orders, were being fired in the direction of the conflagration. As if urging each other on, the soldiers cried at each shot, "'Fine! That's good! Look at it! Grand!' The fire, fanned by the breeze, was rapidly spreading. The French columns that had advanced beyond the village went back. But as though in revenge for this failure, the enemy placed ten guns to the right of the village and began firing them at Tushin's battery. In their childlike glee, 
aroused by the fire and their luck in successfully cannonading the French, our artillerymen only noticed this battery when two balls, and then four more, fell among our guns, one knocking over two horses and another tearing off a munition-wagon driver's leg. Their spirits once roused were, however, not diminished but only changed character. The horses were replaced by others from a reserve gun carriage, the wounded were carried away, and the four guns were turned against the ten-gun battery. Tushin's companion officer had been killed at the beginning of the engagement, and within an hour seventeen of the forty men of the gun's crews had been disabled, but the artillerymen were still as merry and lively as ever. Twice they noticed the French appearing below them, and then they fired grape-shot at them. Little Tushin, moving feebly and awkwardly, kept telling his orderly to refill my pipe for that one, and then, scattering sparks from it, ran forward shading his eyes with his small hand to look at the French. "'Smack at em, lads!' he kept saying, seizing the guns by the wheels and working the screws himself. Amid the smoke, deafened by the incessant reports which always made him jump, Tushin, not taking his pipe from his mouth, ran from gun to gun, now aiming, now counting the charges, now giving orders about replacing dead or wounded horses, and harnessing fresh ones, and shouting in his feeble voice, so high-pitched and irresolute. His face grew more and more animated. Only when a man was killed or wounded did he frown and turn away from the sight, shouting angrily at the men, who, as is always the case, hesitated about lifting the injured or dead. The soldiers, for the most part handsome fellows, and is always the case in an artillery company, a head and shoulders taller and twice as broad as their officer, all looked at their commander like children in an embarrassing situation, and the expression on his face was invariably reflected on theirs. Owing to the terrible uproar and the necessity for concentration and activity, Tushin did not experience the slightest unpleasant sense of fear and the thought that he might be killed or badly wounded never occurred to him. On the contrary, he became more and more elated. It seemed to him that it was a very long time ago, almost a day since he had first seen the enemy and fired the first shot, and that the corner of the field he stood on was well-known and familiar ground. Though he thought of everything, considered everything, and did everything the best of officers could do in his position, he was in a state akin to feverish delirium or drunkenness. From the deafening sounds of his own guns around him, the whistle and thud of the enemy's cannonballs, from the flushed and perspiring faces of the crew bustling round the guns, from the sight of the blood of men and horses, from the little puffs of smoke on the enemy's side, always followed by a ball flying past and striking the earth, a man, a gun, a horse. From the sight of all these things a fantastic world of his own had taken possession of his brain, and at that moment afforded him pleasure. The enemy's guns were in his fancy, not guns, but pipes, from which occasional puffs were blown by an invisible smoker. "'There, he's puffing again,' muttered Tushin to himself, as a small cloud rose from the hill and was borne in a streak to the left by the wind. "'Now look out for the ball.' We'll throw it back. "'What do you want, Your Honor?' asked an artilleryman, standing close by, who heard him muttering. "'Nothing. Only a shell,' he answered. "'Come along, our Matveyevna,' he said to himself. Matveyevna, daughter of Matthew, was the name his fancy gave to the farthest gun of the battery, which was large and of an old pattern. 
The French swarming round their guns seemed to him like ants. In that world, the handsome drunkard number one of the second gun's crew was uncle. Tushin looked at him more often than at anyone else, and took delight in his every movement. The sound of musketry at the foot of the hill, now diminishing, now increasing, seemed like someone's breathing. He listened intently to the ebb and flow of these sounds. Ah, breathing again, breathing, he muttered to himself. He imagined himself as an enormously tall, powerful man who was throwing cannonballs at the French with both hands. Now then, Matveyevna, dear old lady, don't let me down, he was saying as he moved from the gun when a strange, unfamiliar voice called above his head. Captain Tushin! Captain! Tushin turned round in dismay. It was the staff officer who had turned him out of the booth at Grunth. He was shouting in a gasping voice, "'Are you mad? You have twice been ordered to retreat, and you—why are they down on me?' thought Tushin, looking in alarm at his superior. "'I—don't,' he muttered, holding up two fingers to his cap. "'I—' But the staff officer did not finish what he wanted to say. A cannonball, flying close to him, caused him to duck and bend over his horse. He paused, and just as he was about to say something more, another ball stopped him. He turned his horse and galloped off. "'Retire! All to retire!' he shouted from a distance. The soldiers laughed. A moment later an adjutant arrived with the same order. It was Prince Andrew. The first thing he saw in riding up to the space where Tushin's guns were stationed was an unharnessed horse with a broken leg, that lay screaming piteously beside the harnessed horses. Blood was gushing from its leg as from a spring. Among the limbers lay several dead men. One ball after another passed over as he approached, and he felt a nervous shudder run down his spine. But the mere thought of being afraid roused him again. "'I cannot be afraid.' thought he, dismounting slowly among the guns. He delivered the order and did not leave the battery. He decided to have the guns removed from their positions and withdrawn in his presence. Together with Tushin, stepping across the bodies and under a terrible fire from the French, he attended to the removal of the guns. "'A staff officer was here a minute ago, but skipped off,' said an artilleryman to Prince Andrew. "'Not like your honor.' Prince Andrew said nothing to Tushin. They were both so busy as to seem not to notice one another. When, having limbered up the only two cannon that remained uninjured out of the four, they began moving down the hill. One shattered gun and one unicorn were left behind. Prince Andrew rode up to Tushin. "'Well, till we meet again,' he said, holding out his hand to Tushin. "'Good-bye, my dear fellow,' said Tushin. "'Dear soul, good-bye, my dear fellow.' And for some unknown reason, Tears suddenly filled his eyes. End of Book Two, Chapter Twenty. Book Two, Chapter Twenty One of War and Peace, Volume One by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Twenty One. The wind had fallen, and black clouds, merging with the powder-smoke, hung low over the field of battle on the horizon. It was growing dark, and the glow of two conflagrations was the more conspicuous. The cannonade was dying down, 
but the rattle of musketry behind and on the right sounded oftener and nearer. As soon as Tushin, with his guns, continually driving round or coming upon wounded men, was out of range of fire and had descended into the dip, he was met by some of the staff, among them the staff officer and Zerkov, who had been twice sent to Tushin's battery but had never reached it. Interrupting one another, they all gave and transmitted orders as to how to proceed, reprimanding and reproaching him. Tushin gave no orders, and silently, fearing to speak because at every word he felt ready to weep without knowing why, rode behind on his artillery nag. Though the orders were to abandon the wounded, many of them dragged themselves after troops and begged for seats on the gun-carriages. The jaunty infantry officer who just before the battle had rushed out of Tushin's wattle-shed was laid with a bullet in his stomach on Matvevna's carriage. At the foot of the hill a pale hussar cadet, supporting one hand with the other, came up to Tushin and asked for a seat. "'Captain, for God's sake, I've hurt my arm,' he said timidly. "'For God's sake, I can't walk. For God's sake!' It was plain that this cadet had already repeatedly asked for a lift and been refused. He asked in a hesitating, piteous voice. "'Tell them to give me a seat, for God's sake!' "'Give him a seat,' said Tushin. "'Lay a cloak for him to sit on, lad,' he said, addressing his favorite soldier. "'And where is the wounded officer?' "'He has been set down. He died,' replied someone. "'Help him up. Sit down, dear fellow, sit down. Spread out the cloak, Antonov.' The cadet was Rostov. With one hand he supported the other. He was pale and his jaw trembled, shivering feverishly. He was placed on Metvevna, the gun from which they had removed the dead officer. The cloak they spread under him was wet with blood which stained his breeches and arm. "'What, are you wounded, my lad?' said Tushin, approaching the gun in which Rostov sat. "'No, it is a sprain.' "'Then what is this blood on the gun-carriage?' inquired Tushin. "'It was the officer, your honor, stained it.' answered the artilleryman, wiping away the blood with his coat-sleeve, as if apologizing for the state of his gun. It was all that they could do to get the guns up the rise aided by the infantry, and having reached the village of Gruntersdorf they halted. It had grown so dark that one could not distinguish the uniforms ten paces off, and the firing had begun to subside. Suddenly, nearby on the right, shouting and firing were again heard. Flashes of shot gleamed in the darkness. This was the last French attack and was met by soldiers who had sheltered in the village houses. They all rushed out of the village again, but Tushin's guns could not move, and the artillerymen, Tushin, and the cadet exchanged silent glances as they awaited their fate. The firing died down, and soldiers, talking eagerly, streamed out of a side street. "'Not hurt, Petrov?' asked one. "'We've given it them hot, mate. They won't make another push now,' said another. You couldn't see a thing. How they shot at their own fellows! Nothing could be seen. Pitch dark, brother. Isn't there something to drink?" The French had been repulsed for the last time. And again and again, in the complete darkness, Tushin's guns moved forward, surrounded by the humming infantry, as by a frame. In the darkness it seemed as though a gloomy unseen river was flowing always in one direction humming with whispers and talk and the sound of hoofs and wheels. Amid the general rumble, the groans and voices of the wounded were more distinctly heard than any other sound in the darkness of the night. 
the gloom that enveloped the army was filled with their groans, which seemed to melt into one with the darkness of the night. After a while the moving mass became agitated, someone rode past on a white horse followed by his suite, and said something in passing. What did he say? Where to now? Halt, is it? Did he thank us? came eager questions from all sides. The whole moving mass began pressing closer together, and a report spread that they were ordered to halt. Evidently those in front had halted. All remained where they were in the middle of the muddy road. Fires were lighted, and the talk became more audible. Captain Tushin, having given orders to his company, sent a soldier to find a dressing-station or a doctor for the cadet, and sat down by a bonfire the soldiers had kindled on the road. Rostov, too, dragged himself to the fire. From pain, cold and damp, a feverish shivering shook his whole body. Drowsiness was irresistibly mastering him, but he kept awake by an excruciating pain in his arm, for which he could find no satisfactory position. He kept closing his eyes and then again looking at the fire, which seemed to him dazzlingly red, and at the feeble, round-shouldered figure of Tushin, who was sitting cross-legged like a Turk beside him. Tushin's large, kind, intelligent eyes were fixed with sympathy and commiseration on Rostov, who saw that Tushin with his whole heart wished to help him but could not. From all sides were heard the footsteps and talk of the infantry, who were walking, driving past and settling down all around. The sound of voices, the tramping feet, the horses' hoofs moving in mud, the crackling of wood-fires near and afar merged into one tremulous rumble. It was no longer, as before, a dark unseen river flowing through the gloom, but a dark sea swelling and gradually subsiding after a storm. Rostov looked at and listened listlessly to what passed before and around him. An infantryman came to the fire, squatted on his heels, held his hands to the blaze, and turned away his face. "'You don't mind, Your Honor?' he asked Tushin. "'I've lost my company, Your Honor. I don't know where. Such bad luck!' With the soldier, an infantry officer with a bandaged cheek came up to the bonfire, and addressing Tushin, asked him to have the guns moved a trifle to let a wagon go past. After he had gone, two soldiers rushed to the campfire. They were quarreling and fighting desperately, each trying to snatch from the other a boot they were both holding on to. "'You picked it up? I dare say! You're very smart!' one of them shouted hoarsely. Then a thin pale soldier, his neck bandaged with a blood-stained leg-band, came up and in angry tones asked the artilleryman for water. "'Must one die like a dog?' said he. Tushin told them to give the man some water. Then a cheerful soldier ran up, begging a little fire for the infantry. "'A nice little hot torch for the infantry. Good luck to you, fellow-countrymen. Thanks for the fire. We'll return it with interest,' said he, carrying away into the darkness a glowing stick. Next came four soldiers, carrying something heavy on a cloak, and passed by the fire. One of them stumbled. "'Who the devil has put the logs on the road?' snarled he. "'He's dead.' Why carry him?" said another. Shut up! And they disappeared into the darkness with their load. Still aching? Tushin asked Rostov in a whisper. Yes. Your Honor, you're wanted by the general. He is in the hut here, said a gunner, coming up to Tushin. Coming, friend. 
Tushin rose, and buttoning his gray coat and pulling it straight, walked away from the fire. Not far from the artillery campfire, in a hut that had been prepared for him, Prince Bergradian sat at dinner, talking with some commanding officers who had gathered at his quarters. The little old man with the half-closed eyes was there greedily gnawing on a mutton-bone, and the general, who had served blamelessly for twenty-two years, flushed by a glass of vodka and the dinner, and the staff-officer with the signet-ring, and Zerkov, uneasily glancing at them all, and Prince Andrew, pale with compressed lips and feverishly glittering eyes. In a corner of the hut stood a standard captured from the French, and the accountant with the naive face was feeling its texture, shaking his head in perplexity, perhaps because the banner really interested him, perhaps because it was hard for him, hungry as he was, to look on at a dinner where there was no place for him. In the next hut there was a French colonel who had been taken prisoner by our dragoons. Our officers were flocking in to look at him. Prince Bergradian was thanking the individual commanders, and inquiring into details of the action and our losses. The general whose regiment had been inspected at Brunau was informing the prince that as soon as the action began he had withdrawn from the wood, mustered the men who were woodcutting and allowing the French to pass him, had made a bayonet charge with two battalions and had broken up the French troops. "'When I saw, Your Excellency, that their first battalion was disorganized, I stopped in the road and thought, I'll let them come on and we'll meet them with the fire of the whole battalion. And that's what I did." The general had so wished to do this, and was so sorry he had not managed to do it, that it seemed to him as if it had really happened. Perhaps it might really have been so. Could one possibly make out amid all that confusion what did or did not happen? "'By the way, Your Excellency, I should inform you,' he continued, remembering Dolikov's conversation with Kutuzov and his last interview with the gentleman ranker, that Private Dolikov, who was reduced to the ranks, took a French officer prisoner in my presence, and particularly distinguished himself. "'I saw the Pavlograd hussars attack there, Your Excellency,' chimed in Zerkov, looking uneasily around. He had not seen the hussars all that day, but had heard about them from an infantry officer. They broke up two squares, Your Excellency." Several of those present smiled at Zerkov's words, expecting one of his usual jokes, but noticing that what he was saying redounded to the glory of our arms and of the day's work, they assumed a serious expression, though many of them knew that what he was saying was a lie devoid of any foundation. Prince Bergradian turned to the old colonel. "'Gentlemen, I thank you all. All arms have behaved heroically infantry, cavalry, and artillery." "'How was it that two guns were abandoned in the center?' he inquired, searching with his eyes for someone. Prince Bergradian did not ask about the guns on the left flank. He knew that all the guns there had been abandoned at the very beginning of the action. "'I think I sent you,' he added, turning to the staff officer on duty. "'One was damaged,' answered the staff officer, "'and the other I can't understand.' I was there all the time giving orders, and had only just left. It is true that it was hot there," he added modestly. Someone mentioned that Captain Tushin was bivouacking close to the village, and had already been sent for. "'Oh, but you were there?' said Prince Bagradian, addressing Prince Andrew. "'Of course, we only just missed one another. 
said the staff officer with a smile to Bolkonsky. "'I had not the pleasure of seeing you,' said Prince Andrew, coldly and abruptly. All were silent. Tushin appeared at the threshold and made his way timidly from behind the backs of the generals. As he stepped past the generals in the crowded hut, feeling embarrassed as he always was by the sight of his superiors, he did not notice the staff of the banner and stumbled over it. Several of those present laughed. "'How was it a gun was abandoned?' asked Bagradian, frowning, not so much at the captain as at those who were laughing, among whom Zerkov laughed loudest. Only now, when he was confronted by the stern authorities, did his guilt and the disgrace of having lost two guns and yet remaining alive present themselves to Tushin in all their horror. He had been so excited that he had not thought about it until that moment. The officer's laughter confused him still more. He stood before Bagradian with his lower jaw trembling and was hardly able to mutter, "'I don't know, Your Excellency. I had no men, Your Excellency.' You might have taken some from the covering troops." Tushin did not say that there were no covering troops, though that was perfectly true. He was afraid of getting some other officer into trouble, and silently fixed his eyes on Bagradian, as a schoolboy who has blundered looks at an examiner. The silence lasted some time. Prince Bagradian, apparently not wishing to be severe, found nothing to say. The others did not venture to intervene. Prince Andrew looked at Tushin from under his brows and his fingers twitched nervously. "'Your Excellency,' Prince Andrew broke the silence with his abrupt voice, "'you are pleased to send me to Captain Tushin's battery. I went there and found two-thirds of the men and horses knocked out, two guns smashed, and no supports at all.' Prince Bagradian and Tushin looked with equal intentness at Bolkonsky, who spoke with suppressed agitation and, if Your Excellency will allow me to express my opinion," he continued, "'we owe today's success chiefly to the action of that battery, and the heroic endurance of Captain Tushin and his company.' And without awaiting a reply, Prince Andrew rose and left the table. Prince Bagradian looked at Tushin, evidently reluctant to show distrust in Bolkonsky's emphatic opinion, yet not feeling able fully to credit it, bent his head and told Tushin that he could go. Prince Andrew went out with him. "'Thank you. You saved me, my dear fellow,' said Tushin. Prince Andrew gave him a look, but said nothing and went away. He felt sad and depressed. It was all so strange, so unlike what he had hoped. "'Who are they? Why are they here? What do they want? And when will all this end?' thought Rostov, looking at the changing shadows before him. The pain in his arm became more and more intense. Irresistible drowsiness overpowered him. Red rings danced before his eyes, and the impression of those voices and faces and a sense of loneliness merged with the physical pain. It was they, these soldiers, wounded and unwounded, it was they who were crushing, weighing down, and twisting the sinews and scorching the flesh of his sprained arm and shoulder. To rid himself of them he closed his eyes. For a moment he dozed. But in that short interval innumerable things appeared to him in a dream. His mother and her large white hand, Sonia's thin little shoulders, Natasha's eyes and laughter, Denisov with his voice and mustache, and Talyanin and all that affair with Talyanin and Bogdanich. 
That affair was the same as this soldier with the harsh voice. And it was that affair and this soldier that were so agonizingly, incessantly pulling and pressing his arm and always dragging it in one direction. He tried to get away from them, but they would not for an instant let his shoulder move a hair's breadth. It would not ache, it would be well, if only they did not pull it. But it was impossible to get rid of them. He opened his eyes and looked up. The black canopy of night hung less than a yard above the glow of the charcoal. Flakes of falling snow were fluttering in that light. Tushin had not returned, the doctor had not come. He was alone now, except for a soldier who was sitting naked at the other side of the fire, warming his thin yellow body. "'Nobody wants me,' thought Rostov. "'There is no one to help or pity me. Yet I was once at home, strong, happy, and loved.' He sighed, and doing so, groaned involuntarily. "'Eh? Is anything hurting you?' asked the soldier, shaking his shirt out over the fire, and not waiting for an answer, he gave a grunt and added, "'What a lot of men have been crippled today! Frightful!' Rostov did not listen to the soldier. He looked at the snowflakes fluttering above the fire and remembered a Russian winter at his warm, bright home, his fluffy fur coat, his quickly gliding sleigh, his healthy body, and all the affection and care of his family. And why did I come here?" he wondered. Next day the French army did not renew their attack, and the remnant of Bagradian's detachment was reunited to Kutuzov's army. End of Book Two, 1805book three chapter one of war and peace volume one by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book three eighteen o five chapter one prince vasily was not a man who deliberately thought out his plans still less did he think of injuring anyone for his own advantage he was merely a man of the world who got on and to whom getting on had become a habit. Schemes and devices for which he never rightly accounted to himself, but which formed the whole interest of his life were constantly shaping themselves in his mind, arising from the circumstances and persons he met. Of these plans he had not merely one or two in his head, but dozens, some only beginning to form themselves, some approaching achievement, and some in course of disintegration. He did not, for instance, say to himself, this man now has influence. I must gain his confidence and friendship, and through him obtain a special grant. Nor did he say to himself, Pierre is a rich man. I must entice him to marry my daughter and lend me the forty thousand roubles I need. But when he came across a man of position his instinct immediately told him that this man could be useful, and without any premeditation Prince Vasily took the first opportunity to gain his confidence, flatter him, become intimate with him, and finally make his request. He had Pierre at hand in Moscow, and procured for him an appointment as gentleman of the bedchamber, which at that time conferred the status of counsellor of state, and insisted on the young man accompanying him to Petersburg and staying at his house. With apparent absent-mindedness, yet with unhesitating assurance that he was doing the right thing, Prince Vasily did everything to get Pierre to marry his daughter. Had he thought out his plans beforehand, 
he could not have been so natural and shown such unaffected familiarity in intercourse with everybody both above and below him in social standing. Something always drew him toward those richer and more powerful than himself, and he had a rare skill in seizing the most opportune moment for making use of people. Pierre, on unexpectedly becoming Count Bezukhov and a rich man, felt himself, after his recent loneliness and freedom from cares, so beset and preoccupied that only in bed was he able to be by himself. He had to sign papers, to present himself at government offices, the purpose of which was not clear to him, to question his chief steward, to visit his estate near Moscow, and to receive many people who formerly did not even wish to know of his existence, but would now have been offended and grieved had he chosen not to see them. These different people, businessmen, relations, and acquaintances alike, were all disposed to treat the young heir in the most friendly and flattering manner. They were all evidently firmly convinced of Pierre's noble qualities. He was always hearing such words as, "'With your remarkable kindness,' or, "'With your excellent heart,' "'You are yourself so honourable, Count,' or, "'Were he as clever as you,' and so on, till he began sincerely to believe in his own exceptional kindness and extraordinary intelligence the more so, as in the depth of his heart it had always seemed to him that he really was very kind and intelligent. Even people who had formerly been spiteful toward him and evidently unfriendly now became gentle and affectionate. The angry eldest princess, with the long waist and hair plastered down like a doll's, had come into Pierre's room after the funeral. With drooping eyes and frequent blushes she told him she was very sorry about their past misunderstandings and did not now feel she had a right to ask him for anything, except only for permission, after the blow she had received, to remain for a few weeks longer in the house she so loved and where she had sacrificed so much. She could not refrain from weeping at these words. Touched that this statuesque princess could so change, Pierre took her hand and begged her forgiveness, without knowing what for. From that day the eldest princess quite changed toward Pierre and began knitting a striped scarf for him. "'Do this for my sake, mon cher. After all, she had to put up with a great deal from the deceased,' said Prince Vasily to him, handing him a deed to sign for the princess' benefit. Prince Vasily had come to the conclusion that it was necessary to throw this bone, a bill for thirty thousand roubles, to the poor princess, that it might not occur to her to speak of his share in the affair of the inlaid portfolio. Pierre signed the deed, and after that the princess grew still kinder. The younger sisters also became affectionate to him, especially the youngest, the pretty one with the mole, who often made him feel confused by her smiles and her own confusion when meeting him. It seemed so natural to Pierre that everyone should like him, and it would have seemed so unnatural had anyone disliked him, that he could not but believe in the sincerity of those around him. Besides, he had no time to ask himself whether these people were sincere or not. He was always busy and always felt in a state of mild and cheerful intoxication. He felt as though he were the centre of some important and general movement, that something was constantly expected of him, that if he did not do it he would grieve and disappoint many people, but if he did this and that all would be well. And he did what was demanded of him, but still, that happy result always remained in the future. More than anyone else, 
Prince Vasily took possession of Pierre's affairs, and of Pierre himself in those early days. From the death of Count Bezukhov, he did not let go his hold of the lad. He had the air of a man oppressed by business, weary and suffering, who yet would not, for pity's sake, leave this helpless youth, who, after all, was the son of his old friend and the possessor of such enormous wealth, to the caprice of fate and the designs of rogues. During the few days he spent in Moscow after the death of Count Bezukhov, he would call Pierre, or go to him himself, and tell him what ought to be done in a tone of weariness and assurance, as if he were adding every time, "'You know I am overwhelmed with business, and it is purely out of charity that I trouble myself about you, and you also know quite well that what I propose is the only thing possible.' "'Well, my dear fellow, to-morrow we are off at last.' said Prince Vasily one day, closing his eyes and fingering Pierre's elbow, speaking as if he were saying something which had long since been agreed upon, and could not now be altered. "'We start to-morrow, and I'm giving you a place in my carriage. I am very glad. All our important business here is now settled, and I ought to have been off long ago. Here is something I have received from the Chancellor. I asked him for you, and you have been entered in the diplomatic corps and made a gentleman of the bedchamber. The diplomatic career now lies open before you." Notwithstanding the tone of wearied assurance with which these words were pronounced, Pierre, who had so long been considering his career, wished to make some suggestion. But Prince Vasily interrupted him in the special deep cooing tone, precluding the possibility of interrupting his speech, which he used in extreme cases when special persuasion was needed. Mais, mon cher, I did this for my own sake, to satisfy my conscience, and there is nothing to thank me for. No one has ever complained yet of being too much loved, and besides, you are free, you could throw it up to-morrow. You will see everything for yourself when you get to Petersburg. It is high time for you to get away from these terrible recollections." Prince Vasily sighed. "'Yes, yes, my boy and my valet can go in your carriage. Ah, I was nearly forgetting," he added. "'You know, mon cher, your father and I had some accounts to settle, so I have received what was due from the Rizan estate and will keep it. You won't require it. We'll go into the accounts later.' By what was due from the Rizan estate, Prince Vasily meant several thousand roubles keat received from Pierre's peasants, which the prince had retained for himself. In Petersburg, as in Moscow, Pierre found the same atmosphere of gentleness and affection. He could not refuse the post, or rather the rank, for he did nothing, that Prince Vasily had procured for him, and acquaintances, invitations, and social occupations were so numerous that even more than in Moscow he felt a sense of bewilderment, bustle, and continual expectation of some good, always in front of him but never attained. Of his former bachelor acquaintances many were no longer in Petersburg. The guards had gone to the front, Dolokhov had been reduced to the ranks, Anatole was in the army somewhere in the provinces, Prince Andrew was abroad, so Pierre had not the opportunity to spend his nights as he used to like to spend them, or to open his mind by intimate talks with a friend older than himself and whom he respected. His whole time was taken up with dinners and balls, and was spent chiefly at Prince Vasily's house in the company of the stout princess, his wife, and his beautiful daughter, Elaine. 
Like the others, Anna Pavlovna Shearer showed Pierre the change of attitude toward him that had taken place in society. Formerly in Anna Pavlovna's presence, Pierre had always felt that what he was saying was out of place, tactless and unsuitable, that remarks which seemed to him clever while they formed in his mind became foolish as soon as he uttered them, while on the contrary Hippolyte's stupidest remarks came out clever and apt. Now everything Pierre said was charmant. Even if Anna Pavlovna did not say so, he could see that she wished to, and only refrained out of regard for his modesty. In the beginning of the winter of 1805 and six, Pierre received one of Anna Pavlovna's usual pink notes with an invitation to which was added, "'You will find the beautiful Elaine here, whom it is always delightful to see.' When he read that sentence, Pierre felt for the first time that some link which other people recognized had grown up between himself and Elaine, and that thought both alarmed him, as if some obligation were being imposed on him which he could not fulfill, and pleased him as an entertaining supposition. Anna Pavlovna's at home was like the former one, only the novelty she offered her guest this time was not Mortmar, but a diplomatist fresh from Berlin, with the very latest details of the Emperor Alexander's visit to Potsdam, and of how the two august friends had pledged themselves in an indissoluble alliance to uphold the cause of justice against the enemy of the human race. Anna Pavlovna received Pierre with a shade of melancholy, evidently relating to the young man's recent loss by the death of Count Bezukhov. Everyone constantly considered it a duty to assure Pierre that he was greatly afflicted by the death of the father he had hardly known, and her melancholy was just like the august melancholy she showed at the mention of her most august majesty, the Empress Maria Fedorovna. Pierre felt flattered by this. Anna Pavlovna arranged the different groups in her drawing-room with her habitual skill. The large group, in which were Prince Vasily and the generals, had the benefit of the diplomat. Another group was at the tea-table. Pierre wished to join the former, but Anna Pavlovna, who was in the excited condition of a commander on a battlefield, to whom thousands of new and brilliant ideas occur which there is hardly time to put in action, seeing Pierre, touched his sleeve with her finger, saying, Wait a bit. I have something in view for you this evening." She glanced at Elaine and smiled at her. "'My dear Elaine, be charitable to my poor aunt who adores you. Go and keep her company for ten minutes, and that it will not be too dull, here is the dear Count who will not refuse to accompany you.' The beauty went to the aunt, but Anna Pavlovna detained Pierre, looking as if she had to give some final necessary instructions. "'Isn't she exquisite?' she said to Pierre, pointing to the stately beauty as she glided away. "'And how she carries herself! For so young a girl, such tact, such masterly perfection of manner, it comes from her heart. Happy the man who wins her! With her the least worldly of men would occupy a most brilliant position in society. Don't you think so? I only wanted to know your opinion.' and Anna Pavlovna let Pierre go. Pierre, in reply, sincerely agreed with her as to Hélène's perfection of manner. If he ever thought of Hélène, it was just of her beauty, and her remarkable skill in appearing slightly dignified in society. The old aunt received the two young people in her corner, 
but seemed desirous of hiding her adoration for Elaine and inclined rather to show her fear of Anna Pavlovna. She looked at her niece as if inquiring what she was to do with these people. On leaving them Anna Pavlovna again touched Pierre's sleeve, saying, "'I hope you won't say that it is dull in my house again,' and she glanced at Elaine. Elaine smiled with a look implying that she did not admit the possibility of anyone seeing her without being enchanted. The aunt coughed, swallowed, and said in French that she was very pleased to see Elaine. Then she turned to Pierre with the same words of welcome and the same look. In the middle of a dull and halting conversation, Elaine turned to Pierre with the beautiful bright smile that she gave to everyone. Pierre was so used to that smile, and it had so little meaning for him, that he paid no attention to it. The aunt was just speaking of a collection of snuff-boxes that had belonged to Pierre's father, Count Bezukhov, and showed them her own box. Prince Elaine asked to see the portrait of the aunt's husband on the box lid. "'That is probably the work of Venesse,' said Pierre, mentioning a celebrated miniaturist, and he leaned over the table to take the snuff-box while trying to hear what was being said at the other table. He half rose, meaning to go round, but the aunt handed him the snuff-box, passing it across Elaine's back. Elaine stooped forward to make room, and looked round with a smile. She was, as always at evening parties, wearing a dress such as was then fashionable, cut very low at front and back. Her bust, which had always seemed like marble to Pierre, was so close to him that his short-sighted eyes could not but perceive the living charm of her neck and shoulders, so near to his lips that he need only have bent his head a little to have touched them. He was conscious of the warmth of her body, the scent of perfume, and the creaking of her corset as she moved. He did not see her marble beauty forming a complete whole with her dress, but all the charm of her body only covered by her garments and having once seen this he could not help being aware of it, just as we cannot renew an illusion we have once seen through. "'So you have never noticed before how beautiful I am?' Elaine seemed to say. "'You had not noticed that I am a woman? Yes, I am a woman who may belong to anyone, to you too,' said her glance. And at that moment Pierre felt that Elaine not only could but must be his wife, and that it could not be otherwise. He knew this at that moment as surely as if he had been standing at the altar with her. How and when this would be he did not know. He did not even know if it would be a good thing, he even felt he knew not why that it would be a bad thing, but he knew it would happen. Pierre dropped his eyes, lifted them again, and wished once more to see her as a distant beauty far removed from him as he had seen her every day until then, but he could no longer do it. He could not, any more than a man who has been looking at a tuft of steppe-grass through the mist and taking it for a tree, can again take it for a tree after he has recognized it to be a tuft of grass. She was terribly close to him. She already had power over him, and between them there was no longer any barrier except the barrier of his own will. "'Well, I will leave you in your little corner,' came Anna Pavlovna's voice. "'I see. You are all right there.' And Pierre, anxiously trying to remember whether he had done anything reprehensible, looked round with a blush. It seemed to him that everyone knew what had happened to him as he knew it himself. 
A little later, when he went up to the large circle, Anna Pavlovna said to him, "'I hear you are refitting your Petersburg house.' This was true. The architect had told him that it was necessary, and Pierre, without knowing why, was having his enormous Petersburg house done up. "'That's a good thing, but don't move from Prince Vasily's. It is good to have a friend like the Prince,' she said, smiling at Prince Vasily. "'I know something about that, don't I? And you are still so young. You need advice. Don't be angry with me for exercising an old woman's privilege.' She paused, as women always do, expecting something after they have mentioned their age. "'If you marry, it will be a different thing,' she continued, uniting them both in one glance. Pierre did not look at Elaine, nor she at him. But she was just as terribly close to him. He muttered something and colored. When he got home he could not sleep for a long time for thinking of what had happened. What had happened? Nothing. He had merely understood that the woman he had known as a child, of whom, when her beauty was mentioned, he had said absent-mindedly, "'Yes, she's good-looking.' He had understood that this woman might belong to him. "'But she's stupid. I have myself said she is stupid,' he thought. "'There is something nasty, something wrong in the feeling she excites in me. I have been told that her brother Anatole was in love with her and she with him, that there was quite a scandal, and that that's why she was sent away. Hippolyte is her brother. Prince Vasily is her father. It's bad, he reflected, but while he was thinking this, the reflection was still incomplete, he caught himself smiling and was conscious that another line of thought had sprung up. And while thinking of her worthlessness, he was also dreaming of how she would be his wife, how she would love him become quite different, and how all he had thought and heard of her might be false. And he again saw her not as the daughter of Prince Vasily, but visualized her whole body only veiled by its gray dress. But no, why did this thought never occur to me before? And again he told himself that it was impossible, that there would be something unnatural, and as it seemed to him dishonorable in this marriage. He recalled her former words and looks, and the words and looks of those who had seen them together. He recalled Anna Pavlovna's words and looks when she spoke to him about his house, recalled thousands of such hints from Prince Vasily and others, and was seized by terror lest he had already, in some way, bound himself to do something that was evidently wrong and that he ought not to do but at the very time he was expressing this conviction to himself, in another part of his mind her image rose in all its womanly beauty. End of Book Three, Chapter One Book Three, Chapter Two of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Two In November 1805, Prince Vasily had to go on a tour of inspection in four different provinces. 
he had arranged this for himself so as to visit his neglected estates at the same time and pick up his son Anatole where his regiment was stationed, and take him to visit Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky, in order to arrange a match for him with the daughter of that rich old man. But before leaving home and undertaking these new affairs, Prince Vasily had to settle matters with Pierre, who, it is true, had latterly spent whole days at home, that is, in Prince Vasily's house where he was staying, and had been absurd, excited, and foolish in Elaine's presence, as a lover should be, but had not yet proposed to her. "'This is all very fine, but things must be settled,' said Prince Vasily to himself, with a sorrowful sigh one morning, feeling that Pierre, who was under such obligations to him, but never mind that, was not behaving very well in this matter. "'Youth, frivolity, well, God be with him.' thought he, relishing his own goodness of heart. But it must be brought to a head. The day after tomorrow will be Leila's name-day. I will invite two or three people, and if he does not understand what he ought to do then, it will be my affair. Yes, my affair. I am her father." Six weeks after Anna Pavlovna's at home, and after the sleepless night when he had decided that to marry Elaine would be a calamity, and that he ought to avoid her and go away. Pierre, despite that decision, had not left Prince Vasili's, and felt with terror that in people's eyes he was every day more and more connected with her, that it was impossible for him to return to his former conception of her, that he could not break away from her, and that, though it would be a terrible thing, he would have to unite his fate with hers. He might, perhaps, have been able to free himself, but that Prince Vasili, who had rarely before given receptions, now hardly let a day go by without having an evening party at which Pierre had to be present, unless he wished to spoil the general pleasure and disappoint everyone's expectation. Prince Vasily, in the rare moments when he was at home, would take Pierre's hand in passing and draw it downwards, or absent-mindedly hold out his wrinkled, clean-shaven cheek for Pierre to kiss, and would say, "'Till to-morrow,' or, "'Be in to dinner, or I shall not see you,' or, I am staying in for your sake, and so on. And though Prince Vasily, when he stayed in, as he said for Pierre's sake, hardly exchanged a couple of words with him, Pierre felt unable to disappoint him. Every day he said to himself one and the same thing. It is time I understood her and made up my mind what she really is. Was I mistaken before, or am I mistaken now? No, she is not stupid. She is an excellent girl he sometimes said to himself. She never makes a mistake, never says anything stupid. She says little, but what she does say is always clear and simple, so she is not stupid. She never was abashed and is not abashed now, so she cannot be a bad woman." He had often begun to make reflections or think aloud in her company, and she had always answered him either by a brief but appropriate remark, showing that it did not interest her, or by a silent look and smile which more palpably than anything else show Pierre her superiority. She was right in regarding all arguments as nonsense in comparison with that smile. She always addressed him with a radiantly confiding smile meant for him alone, in which there was something more significant than in the general smile that usually brightened her face. Pierre knew that everyone was waiting for him to say a word and cross a certain line, and he knew that sooner or later he would step across it, 
but an incomprehensible terror seized him at the thought of that dreadful step. A thousand times during that month and a half, while he felt himself drawn nearer and nearer to that dreadful abyss, Pierre said to himself, "'What am I doing? I need resolution. Can it be that I have none?' He wished to make a decision but felt with dismay that, in this matter, he lacked that strength of will which he had known in himself and really possessed. Pierre was one of those who are only strong when they feel themselves quite innocent, and since that day when he was overpowered by a feeling of desire while stooping over the snuff-box at Anna Pavlovna's, an unacknowledged sense of the guilt of that desire paralyzed his will. On Elaine's name-day, a small party of just their own people, as his wife said, met for supper at Prince Vasili's. All these friends and relations have been given to understand that the fate of the young girl would be decided that evening. The visitors were seated at supper. Princess Kuragina, a portly imposing woman who had once been handsome, was sitting at the head of the table. On either side of her sat the more important guests, an old general and his wife and Anna Pavlovna Shearer. At the other end sat the younger and less important guests, and there too sat the members of the family and Pierre and Elaine side by side. Prince Vasily was not having any supper. He went round the table in a merry mood, sitting down now by one, now by another of the guests. To each of them he made some careless and agreeable remark, except to Pierre and Elaine, whose presence he seemed not to notice. He enlivened the whole party. The wax candles burned brightly, the silver and crystal gleamed, so did the ladies' toilets and the gold and silver of the men's epaulets. Servants in scarlet liveries moved round the table, the clatter of plates, knives and glasses mingled with the animated hum of several conversations. At one end of the table the old chamberlain was heard assuring an old baroness that he loved her passionately, at which she laughed. At the other could be heard the story of the misfortunes of some Mary Victorovna or other. At the center of the table, Prince Vasily attracted everybody's attention. With a facetious smile on his face, he was telling the ladies about last Wednesday's meeting of the Imperial Council, at which Sergei Kuzmich Vyazmitinov, the new military governor-general of Petersburg, had received and read the then-famous rescript of the Emperor Alexander from the army to Sergei Kuzmich, in which the Emperor said that he was receiving from all sides declarations of the people's loyalty that the declaration from Petersburg gave him particular pleasure, and that he was proud to be at the head of such a nation, and would endeavor to be worthy of it. This rescript began with the words, Sergei Kuzmich, from all sides reports reach me, etc. "'Well, and so he never got farther than Sergei Kuzmich?' asked one of the ladies. "'Exactly! Not a hair's breadth farther!' answered Prince Vasily, laughing. Sergei Kuzmich, from all sides, from all sides, Sergei Kuzmich. Poor Vyazmitinov could not get any farther. He began the rescript again and again, but as soon as he uttered, Sergei, he sobbed, Kuzmich, tears, and from all sides was smothered in sobs and he could get no farther. And again his handkerchief, and again, Sergei Kuzmich, from all sides and tears till at last somebody else was asked to read it. "'Kuzmich! From all sides! And then tears!' someone repeated, laughing. "'Don't be unkind,' 
cried Anna Pavlovna from her end of the table, holding up a threatening finger. He is such a worthy and excellent man, our dear Vyazmitinov. Everybody laughed a great deal. At the head of the table, where the honored guests sat, everyone seemed to be in high spirits and under the influence of a variety of exciting sensations. Only Pierre and Elaine sat silently side by side, almost at the bottom of the table, a suppressed smile brightening both their faces, a smile that had nothing to do with Sergei Kuzmich, a smile of bashfulness at their own feelings. But much as all the rest laughed, talked, and joked, much as they enjoyed their Rhine wine, saute, and ices, and however they avoided looking at the young couple, and heedless and unobservant as they seemed of them, one could feel by the occasional glances they gave that the story about Sergei Kuzmich, the laughter, and the food were all a pretense, and that the whole attention of that company was directed to Pierre and Elaine. Prince Vasily mimicked the sobbing of Sergei Kuzmich, and at the same time his eyes glanced toward his daughter and while he laughed, the expression on his face clearly said, "'Yes, it's getting on. It will all be settled to-day.' Anna Pavlovna threatened him on behalf of our dear Vyazmitinov, and in her eyes, which for an instant glanced at Pierre, Prince Vasily read a congratulation on his future son-in-law and on his daughter's happiness. The old princess sighed sadly as she offered some wine to the old lady next to her, and glanced angrily at her daughter and her sigh seemed to say, "'Yes, there's nothing left for you and me but to sip sweet wine, my dear, now that the time has come for these young ones to be thus boldly, provocatively happy.' "'And what nonsense all this is that I am saying,' thought a diplomatist, glancing at the happy faces of the lovers. "'That's happiness!' Into the insignificant, trifling, and artificial interests uniting that society, had entered the simple feeling of the attraction of a healthy and handsome young man and woman for one another. And this human feeling dominated everything else and soared above all their affected chatter. Chest fell flat, news was not interesting, and the animation was evidently forced. Not only the guests, but even the footmen waiting at table seemed to feel this, and they forgot their duties as they looked at the beautiful Elaine with her radiant face and at the red, broad and happy, though uneasy face of Pierre. It seemed as if the very light of the candles was focused on those two happy faces alone. Pierre felt that he was the center of it all, and this both pleased and embarrassed him. He was like a man entirely absorbed in some occupation. He did not see, hear, or understand anything clearly. Only now and then detached ideas and impressions from the world of reality shot unexpectedly through his mind. "'So it is all finished,' he thought. "'And how has it all happened? How quickly! Now I know that not because of her alone, nor of myself alone, but because of everyone, it must inevitably come about. They are all expecting it. They are so sure that it will happen that I cannot... I cannot disappoint them. But how will it be? I do not know. But it will certainly happen," thought Pierre, glancing at those dazzling shoulders close to his eyes. Or he would suddenly feel ashamed of he knew not what. He felt it awkward to attract everyone's attention, and to be considered a lucky man, and, with his plain face, to be looked on as a sort of Paris possessed of a Helen. 
But no doubt it always is and must be so," he consoled himself. And besides, what have I done to bring it about? How did it begin? I travelled from Moscow with Prince Vasily. Then there was nothing. So why should I not stay at his house? Then I played cards with her and picked up a reticule and drove out with her. How did it begin? When did it all come about? And here he was, sitting by her side as her betrothed, seeing, hearing, feeling her nearness, her breathing, her movements, her beauty. Then it would suddenly seem to him that it was not she but he was so unusually beautiful, and that that was why they all looked so at him, and flattered by this general admiration he would expand his chest, raise his head, and rejoice at his good fortune. Suddenly he heard a familiar voice repeating something to him a second time, but Pierre was so absorbed that he did not understand what was said. "'I am asking you when you last heard from Bolkonsky,' repeated Prince Vasily a third time. "'How absent-minded you are, my dear fellow!' Prince Vasily smiled, and Pierre noticed that everyone was smiling at him and Elaine. "'Well, what of it, if you all know it?' thought Pierre. "'What of it?' It's the truth!" And he himself smiled his gentle, childlike smile, and Elaine smiled too. "'When did you get the letter? Was it from Olmutz?' repeated Prince Vasily, who pretended to want to know this in order to settle a dispute. "'How can one talk or think of such trifles?' thought Pierre. "'Yes, from Olmutz,' he answered with a sigh. After supper Pierre with his partner followed the others into the drawing-room. The guests began to disperse, some without taking leave of Elaine. Some, as if unwilling to distract her from an important occupation, came up to her for a moment and made haste to go away, refusing to let her see them off. The diplomatist preserved a mournful silence as he left the drawing-room. He pictured the vanity of his diplomatic career in comparison with Pierre's happiness. The old general grumbled at his wife when she asked how his leg was. "'Oh, the old fool,' he thought, "'that Princess Elaine will be beautiful still when she's fifty. "'I think I may congratulate you,' whispered Anna Pavlovna to the old princess, kissing her soundly. "'If I hadn't this headache, I'd have stayed longer.' The old princess did not reply. She was tormented by jealousy of her daughter's happiness. While the guests were taking their leave, Pierre remained for a long time alone with Elaine in the little drawing-room where they were sitting. He had often before, during the last six weeks, remained alone with her, but had never spoken to her of love. Now he felt that it was inevitable, but he could not make up his mind to take the final step. He felt ashamed. He felt that he was occupying someone else's place here beside Elaine. This happiness is not for you some inner voice whispered to him, "'This happiness is for those who have not in them what there is in you.' But as he had to say something, he began by asking her whether she was satisfied with the party. She replied in her usual simple manner that this name-day of hers had been one of the pleasantest she had ever had. Some of the nearest relatives had not yet left. They were sitting in the large drawing-room. Prince Vasily came up to Pierre with languid footsteps. Pierre rose and said it was getting late. Prince Vasily gave him a look of stern inquiry, 
as though what Pierre had just said was so strange that one could not take it in. But then the expression of severity changed, and he drew Pierre's hand downwards, made him sit down, and smiled affectionately. "'Well, Lelia?' he asked, turning instantly to his daughter and addressing her with the careless tone of habitual tenderness natural to parents who have petted their children from babyhood, but which Prince Vasily had only acquired by imitating other parents. And he again turned to Pierre. "'Sergei Kuzmich, from all sides,' he said, unbuttoning the top button of his waistcoat. Pierre smiled, but his smile showed that he knew it was not the story about Sergei Kuzmich that interested Prince Vasily just then, and Prince Vasily saw that Pierre knew this. He suddenly muttered something and went away. It seemed to Pierre that even the prince was disconcerted. The sight of the discomposure of that old man of the world touched Pierre. He looked at Elaine, and she too seemed disconcerted, and her look seemed to say, "'Well, it is your own fault.' "'The step must be taken, but I cannot, I cannot,' thought Pierre, and he again began speaking about indifferent matters, about Sergei Kuzmich, asking what the point of the story was, as he had not heard it properly. Elaine answered with a smile that she too had missed it. When Prince Vasily returned to the drawing-room, the princess, his wife, was talking in low tones to the elderly lady about Pierre. "'Of course it is a brilliant match, but happiness, my dear—' "'Marriages are made in heaven,' replied the elderly lady. Prince Vasily passed by, seeming not to hear the ladies, and sat down on a sofa in a far corner of the room. He closed his eyes and seemed to be dozing. His head sank forward, and then he roused himself. "'Aline,' he said to his wife, "'go and see what they are about.' The princess went up to the door, passed by it with a dignified and indifferent air, and glanced into the little drawing-room. Pierre and Elaine still sat talking just as before. "'Still the same,' she said to her husband. Prince Vasily frowned, twisting his mouth, his cheeks quivered and his face assumed the coarse, unpleasant expression peculiar to him. Shaking himself, he rose, threw back his head, and with resolute steps went past the ladies into the little drawing-room. With quick steps he went joyfully up to Pierre. His face was so unusually triumphant that Pierre rose in alarm on seeing it. "'Thank God!' said Prince Vasily. "'My wife has told me everything!' He put one arm around Pierre and the other around his daughter. "'My dear boy, Lelia, I am very pleased!' His voice trembled. "'I loved your father, and she will make you a good wife. God bless you!' He embraced his daughter, and then again Pierre, and kissed him with his malodorous mouth. Tears actually moistened his cheeks. "'Princess, come here!' he shouted. The old princess came in and also wept. The elderly lady was using her handkerchief, too. Pierre was kissed, and he kissed the beautiful Elaine's hand several times. After a while they were left alone again. "'All this had to be, and could not be otherwise.' thought Pierre, so it is useless to ask whether it is good or bad. It is good because it's definite, and one is rid of the old tormenting doubt." Pierre held the hand of his betrothed in silence, looking at her beautiful bosom as it rose and fell. "'Elaine,' he said aloud, and paused. 
Something special is always said in such cases, he thought, but could not remember what it was that people say. He looked at her face. She drew nearer to him. Her face flushed. Oh, take those off, those, she said, pointing to his spectacles. Pierre took them off, and his eyes, besides the strange look eyes have from which spectacles have just been removed, had also a frightened and inquiring look. He was about to stoop over her hand and kiss it, but with a rapid, almost brutal movement of her head, she intercepted his lips and met them with her own. Her face struck Pierre by its altered, unpleasantly excited expression. "'It is too late now. It's done. Besides, I love her,' thought Pierre. "'Je vous aime. I love you,' he said, remembering what has to be said at such moments but his words sounded so weak that he felt ashamed of himself. Six weeks later he was married, and settled in Count Bezukhov's large, newly furnished Petersburg house, the happy possessor, as people said, of a wife who was a celebrated beauty, and of millions of money. End of Book Three, Chapter Two Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.